Well, we're in the book of 1 Corinthians this morning, and so I'll invite you to turn there with me, please. 1 Corinthians, and we're in chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we are finishing chapter 5 today. It may have seemed to you that we may never finish chapter 5, but we actually are today. Okay, so uh, last week we covered verses 6 through 8. And this week we're covering verses 9 through 13 together. So what I'd like to do, as we've really taken this as one unit in a sense, is I'd like to start reading in verse 6 and read all the way through verse 13 this morning. Okay, so let's do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll read verses 6 through 13. And it says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers, idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Now, as we have been studying this passage, we recognize immediately that this is a difficult passage of Scripture. I I think we can all agree with that, right? This is an extremely difficult passage of Scripture. Um, It's difficult on a couple of fronts, actually. One, it's difficult uh, to even comprehend, first of all. Uh, then second, it's very difficult because once we have comprehension of it, we don't really want to follow through with what this says. That makes it difficult, okay? I think even additionally, it's, it's kind of just hard to talk about these issues. I mean, isn't that kind of honest? It's kind of hard to talk about these things. Sexual immorality in the church, purging the evil person from among you, that doesn't sound very happy and exciting. Uh, you're right, but it doesn't mean that it's wrong. It doesn't mean that it's not beneficial for the church, right? So these are things that we must look at, we must be examining, and we must be applying to the life of our church. We must be. Okay, so just a little review from last week. Uh, We went through the illustration that Paul was giving, and he was giving us a principle in this big illustration. And so we saw several things as we walked through the text together. And we saw the indictment against them. Your boasting, your boasting is not good. And then the illustration of the leaven. I didn't go back and count, but I don't know how many times I said leaven last week, but it was a lot. Because it was all about leavened bread and, and, and unleavened bread. Uh, so he gave this illustration. And then we have the imperative, which we find in verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you might be a new lump. Okay, that's what we're supposed to do. Cleanse out the old leaven. And then we have the indicative, the statement of reality, which was, you really are unleavened. 
okay? If you were here last week, I, I hope that that point hit true for you, that although we are, as the church, a lump of dough, right? That's, that's the illustration, okay? I didn't make it up. We are a lump of dough, and you can either be an unleavened lump of dough, or you can be a leavened lump of dough. And if there's a little leaven in that lump of dough, the whole thing's going to be impacted by that leaven, right? Now, this is a metaphor for understanding an evil person in the midst of the church. If there's an evil person in the midst of the church, that is the lump of dough, then that evil person will then affect the whole lump. So what is Paul's call to the church? Get that lump and get it out of there that you might be unleavened. Why? Because you really are unleavened. But you just said we have leaven in the midst of our lump. How can we be unleavened if you said that we have leaven in us? He's saying in Christ, your position in him is perfectly holy. You have all the benefits of Christ given to you. All your sins and debts are paid for in Christ, and you truly are holy in that regard. However, as you live in this life, we are becoming holy, both individually and collectively as the church, and so there's going to be sin as it remains, and as we're growing in holiness until our final day, we are growing in holiness, which means that there's still sin hanging around. And I don't know that I really need to explain that very much because every single person in this room knows that although they are perfected in Christ, you're still a sinner. Right? You know that. So here's how it worked. The unleavened bread. The bread reminds the people of God's powerful and swift deliverance from their affliction. We remember this, hopefully. And then there was a leavening effect that he talks about. And the leavening effect is a little leaven, that is sin, affects the whole lump, that is the church. The leaven, sin, must be removed from the lump so that the church might be unleavened, as you really are unleavened. So the reality of who you are should be present as you live this life, right? You really are unleavened, so live like it, right? That's, that's the idea. You really are purified in Christ, holy, so live a holy life, because you really are unleavened. So live like it, not only as individuals, but as the church collectively, right? As the church collectively, that's the whole point. So uh, then we've finished with this idea. Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, it is time to celebrate the festival with unleavened bread, right? So that was the idea that we go and we search for all the leaven as the Jewish people have come to do right? However, for us, it's not a fun little game as it was for them. It is, I don't think it's a fun little game for you. When you search your heart and your mind for sin, is that fun to you? It's not fun to me, but it is what we are called to do. Go on a search for all the sin that is found there because you are to be celebrating the feast of unleavened bread because Christ, your Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And as the Jewish people celebrated this festival, and the Passover lamb was sacrificed, they were not allowed to have leaven in their homes for seven days following this sacrifice. Now, we don't only go unleavened for seven days. You know, seven days after you have faith in Christ, you are to have no sin, but after that, it doesn't matter. Have all the sin you want. Obviously, that's not true. So how long do we go without having leaven in our hearts perpetually? We celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread perpetually. And that means look for the leaven of sin in your heart and get rid of it. Why? Because you really are unleavened. So live like it. Okay? I hope all that came together. So this morning as we start 
the, the second portion of this, he talked about the principle and he illustrated it. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at how that principle then applies to the life of their church in their specific situation. And there is just so much application for us because we're looking at a specific situation for a church in the ancient city of Corinth in the first century. And you might think, of what relevance is it to us to study a first century church in an ancient city? What does this have to do with anything with us here today? It has everything to do with us because this is the word of God and it is profitable to us. And so as we read it, we understand that the things they are being indicted for, their sin and their instruction is also for us today. We must learn from them. We must learn from their mistakes that we might not make the same ones today, right? If Paul were alive today and he were to know us and evaluate us as a church, do you think that he would say, well, there's lots of other churches I could write letters to, um, but you guys, you know, you're just sinless, so I, don't, I have nothing to say to you. It's not worth it to write a letter to you about your problems. Uh, wrong, right? He would have many things to say, many things to say to us. So we're just like them. We all have our problems. But here's the thing is that we need to have open minds and open hearts to see our problems for what they are, see our sin, and then conform ourselves to what the word of God says. And sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard. Corporately and individually. Okay? And this is just one of those things that's hard. So to alleviate you from that pain, I thought we might have a little bit of a Greek lesson this morning because that's, that's less painful. Is it? I don't know. Um, no, but in, in reality, we are going to look at a couple of Greek words this morning. And, and before you think that this is of no relevance to you, I just want to argue my case that I think this is of great relevance to you. Because in the English language, we have, our, our, our vocabulary is a lot more bland, let's say, okay? We have one word for something, they have five words to say that same thing, but each of their five words means a very specific part of that thing. And so their language was just far more specific than our language. And so when we look at particular words that were used in the originals, we get a better idea of what specifically is being said. I hope that makes sense. And so there are three words in particular I want to share with you this morning um, because it helps us get our bearings on this particular idea, which is defining sexual immorality. Because that's the whole issue here. He says in, in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Don't you think it's good for us to define then who those sexually immoral people are as a category. Who are we talking about? A man who had lustful thoughts this morning? And you came in here to worship with us? Are we to kick you out of the church? Is that what he's referencing? You see, if we don't know then we remain blurry to this, don't we? I don't know. I don't really know how to go about doing this. I don't, I don't really know what that means, and I'm not all that interested in actually digging in to know what it means, so I'm just going to hang out here way up in a high view and just kind of ignore it. And that's where we like to live many times. If there's a difficult thing that it's just like, I don't know how all that works together, um, then we just remain high many times, and we just don't bother to get down in there and see what it's all about. And we're going to get down in there and see what it's all about. 
And it's good for us to do that. Because for us to remain blurry on these things is not okay. We should clarify what these things mean. And I hope that you're in agreement with me. Because if you're not, and we start to look at some specific words, you're going to say, I thought we were listening to a sermon, not a Greek lesson. And you've, you've pitted two things against each other that aren't necessarily meant to be pitted against each other. <coughs> understanding Greek words means understanding what Paul said. And if understanding what Paul said matters, it's because it's what God has said to us. So looking at what these words mean matters. And in fact, it is a sermon. Okay? All right, so with all that, Let's look at Romans chapter 1 for a moment because we're going to look at this in defining sexual immorality as a category and we're going to see where it came from. We're going to see what it means. We're going to see how this thing plays out and then we're going to take that and we're going to bring that as Paul both wrote Romans and 1 Corinthians. We're going to understand sexual immorality as Paul understands sexual immorality and we're going to take that and we're going to understand this, our, our, our verses this morning, 9 through 13, through the lens of how Paul defines sexual immorality, okay? Does all that make sense? So let's look at it. I, I, I want, so I, I already asked you to turn over to 1 Corinthians uh, 5 because we wanted to read our text for this morning. So what I now need to ask you to do is turn to Romans chapter 1 and look at it with me. Uh, again, I just, I want to invite you to use your little things if you have them, right? That, those things are, are, are helpful, right? I'm using my little things. Well, bookmark ribbons. Do they have a name? I don't know. Bookmark ribbons. Huh? Whatever they're called. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. It says, <coughs> Excuse me. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can, be made no, uh, what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Okay, uh, we're just going to take that little section all, all together and just say uh, that <coughs> what he's about to go through here is kind of the digression of humanity into their depraved state, right? This is how sin goes, the trajectory of sin. Uh, sin buries itself deep, and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper, and this is what's happening, okay? So as we start to look at this, first idea I want to make sure and put on the screen for you is a the, the word for sexual immorality in Greek is one that you're going to recognize to your ear because it's porneia. You know that word. Porneia. That's what sexual immorality is in Greek. It's a big concept, but it's actually something that has particular meaning. It doesn't mean 
all and everything that we think of when we think sexual immorality. Okay? It has more of a specific meaning. So when Paul is saying uh, sexually immoral people, he has a particular definition in mind. So porneia is our first word this morning. And uh, it's those who engage in sexual immorality. But what does engage mean? Again, is it a thought thing? Is it a heart thing? Or is it a physical act thing? Or is it all of it? I don't know. We don't know yet. But we're going to find out. Okay, so what is being said? We're following the progression of sin here in Romans. And it's going to get to sexuality here in just a second. But the first step is this, is that God reveals himself to man. But man suppresses the truth of God. That's step one. Okay? That's how it works. That's step one. God has revealed himself. This is still true today, is is it not? Has God revealed himself, and is God still revealed today in the things that have been made? Yes, God is still revealing himself. Here he is. But man suppresses the truth, that is mankind, suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, and says, no. And you create gods after whatever other image. Okay? That's step one, and that's what we see happening in verses 18 through 23. But I want to move on for the sake of our purposes this morning. Verse 24, it says, Therefore, so just notice, there's a reason that God does something. Because mankind has rejected God, God does something, okay? God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worship and serve the creator or the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Okay, so that's number two. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. We already see that the denial of God himself is reflective in human depravity. How? Sexually. The sexuality of men and women is affected when God is denied as God. That's immediately what happens. God gave them over to something. What did he give them? He gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. This is what he did. And so enter in our second Greek word for lusts here. What did God actually give them up to? Uh, Greek word is epithumia. What does this mean? Translated lust in the ESV, okay? It is your passions and cravings, your longings and desires. God took your passions and cravings and longings and desires and he gave them up to impurity. So a craving in itself is not bad, right? Can we all agree with that? So it's not saying that God created, God gave them over to crave things, no. Mankind already craves things, but God takes the cravings and he takes those cravings and he gives them up to impurity. So your cravings have been messed with in a sense, right? You no longer crave appropriate things. You crave what is impure. So like, for example, when you crave food, is that a sinful craving? Uh, well, I don't, I don't know. What do you... <laughs> what are you craving exactly? No, I just a general craving for food, we have to acknowledge, is not sinful. God intends for us to eat, doesn't he? And so when it's mealtime, which is, I mean, it's 1138, it's getting close to mealtime, and you may be craving food right now. Is that bad? Is that sinful? No, it's not. 
However, to crave an excess amount of food is that sinful? It is. That's called gluttony. That is sinful. So, likewise, let's just make sure we stay on track. To crave the physical relationship, sinful in itself? No. God intends for that craving to exist, and he intends for children to be produced. Would you agree? Yes. So that craving in itself is not sinful. However, when that craving is handed over to impurity, guess what? Those cravings are now sinful. Okay? It's not that every sinner has all the time bad cravings. By the grace of God, that's not true, right? Because certain cravings are not inherently sinful, right? Okay. Now, so this is the word epithumia. That is your longings, your cravings, your passions, your desires, the things that you want. To want a thing in itself, not bad. However, what you want it may be a bad craving, and in fact, God has handed over your cravings to impurity. Okay, so we're, we're following on a track here. We're on a trajectory to a, a, particular, a particular thing. So let's look at how it goes. Verse 26. So that's the first thing God gave them up to. He gave them up in their lust, in the lust of their hearts to impurity. That's number one. And then, and then that's, this is how it happens next that God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verses 26 through 27. For this reason, the same reason as the other thing, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, different than their cravings, their lust to impurity. It's different. Completely different set of words here. God also gave them up to dishonorable passions. And listen to how that's explained. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and they were consumed with passion, that is sexual desire, for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Okay, so this is the next thing that happens. Man rejects God. God gives them over in their lust, their cravings to impurity. And the next step then is God also gives them up to dishonorable passions. What is that? So the next word we're going to learn is, and it's our final one, okay? So we have porneia, we have epithumia, and now we have pathos. God gave them up to dishonorable pathos, passions. Passion is actually a word that is related to suffering, and it's suffering because it's, it's an intense experience of strong desire, Specifically in this situation, it's intense physical sexual desire. That's what it means. Used in a different way, you, you've heard of, for example, yeah, I know you all have, The Passion of the Christ. You've heard of this movie? It comes from a form of this word because the word actually means suffering. So when you hear The Passion of the Christ, it's actually the suffering of Christ because those words go together, passion and suffering. And so this is about suffering. It's internal suffering because you want something so bad that it almost hurts that you don't have it. So you get the idea of suffering, right? So this thing inside of you, this longing for something and you want it, and this internal suffering 
God has done something with that thing in you. He has given them up to dishonorable passions. Dishonorable passions. So now the things inside of you that you just can't help, that you want, those are dishonorable. This is not looking good. And this is what we see happening in the world around us. It's not a surprise. It shouldn't be a surprise to you. God has already told us that this is how it happens. So it's a common set of words here that we find. These three. Porneia, epithumia, and pathos. These three words, they're translated differently. The reason we have to use the original word is because when you look at your English translation, it has different words and you don't know that it's the same word. That's the confusing part, right? Because sometimes pathos is, is translated desire. Sometimes epithumia is translated desire. And you're like, well, I don't know which word we're talking about. So that's why we need to kind of look at what is being said specifically by the words. It's a common set of three words, and I want to read two passages for you where you can see it very plainly. If I've lost you up to this point, then you'll get back with it right now in this moment, okay? In Colossians 3, 5, just one verse, these three words that you see that we've just talked about from Romans 1 are used together. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And when earthly is said, that, that's something bad, right? We know that. That's sinful. That's of the sinful man. And here are several things, uh, three of which you should recognize. These things are evil, sinful. Put them to death. Sexual immorality. This is Colossians 3.5. That is porneia. Impurity. Not one of our words. Passion. That's pathos. And evil desire. That is epithumia and covetousness, which is idolatry. So he takes these three words, sexual immorality, porneia, passion, pathos, and evil desire, epithumia, and he puts them all together and he says, these things, all three of them, bad, evil, put them to death. Which means for the believer, what does that say? These things are still lingering in you as, a, as effects of the fall. You need to understand that when you denied God as an unbeliever, you were given over to these things in your heart and in your mind. And you have not yet been perfected in these things. And so you have to look back on your previous condition when you were a sinner who rejected God and all these things were true of you. And what Paul is saying is, you know, that condition that you used to be in when you denied God and he gave you over in your lust and he gave you over to dishonorable passions you no longer have to live in that world. You need to take those things and put them to death. That's no longer to be you. And this is what it is to commit to being a sexually immoral person, is that you don't care. You're just following after your passions and your cravings and your desires. Now, what does that sound like? It sounds like the world that we live in. Who are you to tell me that my internal passions and desires are wrong? That's how the world around us thinks. We are to tell you that your internal passions and desires are wrong, and the reason they're wrong, and you don't even see it, is for the very next thing. But I'm getting ahead of myself because I'm getting excited. First, First Thessalonians 4, I want to read this one for you as well. It's on the screen. And the reason I put this on the screen is because for the last two weeks, actually it was three weeks ago, 
but we read this together. Do you remember? 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5. We all read this together. And guess what three words are used? For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you might be holy. God wants you holy, for you really are holy. That you abstain from sexual immorality, pernea. And that each of you know how to control your own body and holiness and honor and not in the pathos of epithumia, like the Gentiles. Do you see it? You are not to be a sexually immoral person. Abstain from sexual immorality. That is to be you. So to commit to sexual immorality means you have given in to pathos and epithumia. Man, I hope that makes sense to you. If you give in to how God has given you over as a, as a sinner, right, in your internal disposition, your heart, your cravings, your desires, that's for the unrepentant, unregenerate believer. And that's not you, but you used to be that, and you are that no longer. However, some of, some of that still remains, but you can't think that it's okay that that remains. You got to get that out of there. Get it out. Be holy. You really are holy, so be holy. And don't, don't give yourself over to sexual immorality, pernea. That's not what God has called you to. God has called you in holiness, so control your body. Wow. I mean, that's just black and white, isn't it? You were called to be holy, so control yourself. How? I don't know. I can't. This, the feelings are too strong. And to that, we have to say, excuse me? If you have been called to do something, guess what you have also been given? The ability to do so. The feelings are not too strong. The passions are not too strong. You're wrong if you have the Holy Spirit of God in you. Now, if you do not have the Spirit of God in you and you are not a believer, these feelings are too strong. Agreed. That is how it's going to be in the sinful condition. So we should expect the sinner to sin. We should expect the sinner to be sexually immoral. I don't know why we would think anything different. You understand? However, for the believer who now has the Spirit of God in them, what's expected of you? That you abstain, you flee these things. Run away. How? I can't. Yes, you can. You have the Spirit of God in you. You can, and you are called to do so. Don't ignore it. Not only as individuals, but as the entire corporate body. So if there is a sexually immoral person among you, get them out. Now, I, I do want to say uh, something just maybe by way of, of, of summary here, that the giving over of God to impure cravings, that is epithumia, leads to the experience of strong physical desire, which is pathos, finally resulting in the physical activity, which is porneia. I'm going to read that again. Look at it. I tried very hard to get a short, succinct little summary here of, of everything so that we can all be on the same page. The giving over of God to impure cravings, that is epithumia, leads to 
it's on a trajectory, leads to the experience of these strong, internal, sinful, passionate desires to do something physically, pathos. And it finally results in what? The physical activity actually taking place, which is porneia, sexual immorality. Now, it's not to say that sexual thoughts and desires inside of you, cravings, are not sexually immoral. We're understanding the words that they meant. Yes, it is wrong. So to have a craving inside of you for something other than what is defined for us in terms of sexuality, any, any expression of physical sexuality outside the marriage covenant of a man and a woman is sexually immoral, according to scripture, on repeat. Whether it be in the heart or the physical activity. However, when we're looking at specific words, what is being said here is that these sexual desires inside of you result in a physical activity, and that physical activity is called porneia, sexual immorality. And specifically what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 5 is stay away from people, don't associate with them, who are sexually immoral who engage in this activity, okay? Okay, let's go back to our summary of Romans 1. We are so close to getting for our, to our text for the day. <laughs> no, the, the reason, I'll tell you the reason I'm doing this. This is, re- this is really uh, probably 70% of what we're covering this morning, and, and really it's because I told you last week, I intended for what we're going to cover today in the text really to be a tag-on to my sermon from last week, so... Uh, This is all extra for us just understanding what Paul's saying this morning. And then we're going to look at how it plays out in their situation, okay? It's really pretty easy. So number four in Romans 1 is that God gave them up also. Number three, God gave them up to a third thing, okay? So step one is man rejected God. Step two is God gives them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity. And then the next step is God gave them over to dishonorable passions and then there's another final step that God gave them up to a debased mind as well, and that's in Romans 1.28. Romans 1.28 says, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You see, there's an activity involved now. You see it? So the cravings and the longings and the desires that are impure, that are dishonorable, have now led down a road. And the end of that road is actually doing the thing. And why don't they stop themselves? Why don't they say, no, this is bad? Because their mind is broken. God gave them up to a debased mind. That word debased means, it means useless. God gave them up to a mind that doesn't work. So when they go down this path and their cravings are just boiling up inside of them and they have these strong sexual urges, and they go toward them, nothing inside of them says, no, I can't do that, it's wrong. Now you might say, but doesn't everyone have, you know, a conscience that's given by God? Yeah, that's true, but that doesn't override what's being said in this text. They also have a debased mind. They also have a broken mind. They have broken passions, they have broken desires, and they have a broken mind. Nothing is truly going to restrain them, but the restraining grace of God, which we call Common grace. The common grace of God restrains people from being as sinful as they could be. So it is only by the grace of God that sinners are not as sinful as they could be. Right? 
That was a mouthful. But that's true. Because you look at the unbelieving world and you say, but I have friends who think that it's wrong and they're not believers. Well, by the grace of God, they think that. Because they should go straight down this path and it is only when God removes his restraining grace that people run headlong into their heart's desires and cravings. And so why all of a sudden are we seeing masses of people all over the planet running headlong over things that are depraved? Because the restraining grace of God has been removed from them and they're just going right after what they want to do. God is letting them do what they want to do in their sin. That's what's happening. So since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, and now they do it because they have no filter. Their brain can't tell them, no, don't do that. But again, that's not you, and that's not me. For all those who are in Christ, our minds are renewed. In fact, we are told to continue to renew our minds, right? Be renewed in your minds. For we have the mind of Christ, we have the mind of Christ. We don't have our old mind, that debased, useless mind. No, that's not us anymore, is it? So then why are you acting like it? That's the, that's the big question. If you act like your cravings have not been changed, if you act like all your desires have not been changed, and if you act like your mind can't process truth, then that is maybe telling us something. It's maybe telling us that the Spirit of God is not in you at all. Impure cravings lead to shameful passions resulting in immoral actions. That's absolutely true. Okay, again, final summary here, and we're going to look at our text. And uh, like I said, it, it, but it flows pretty quickly, okay? So, for those who have the Spirit of God at work in them, these sinful cravings, these passions these actions, they can no longer remain active in us. We have both the mandate and the ability to put these things to death, okay? So what we have identified as a former way of life and the new way of life in Christ, okay? Do you feel, do you feel right now, actually, can you just be honest that you feel the push and pull of the old self and the new self in Christ? You feel it? You know that it's there? I feel what it is to be in that, dep that, that completely depraved state where everything about me was broken. My cravings are broken. My mind is broken. What I long for is broken. I feel that inside of me, but at the same time, I feel the Spirit of God inside of me putting those things to death, and I'm becoming holy. And even when I mess up, even when I make a mistake and I act like that old person, I, I yet have forgiveness and I have grace and I have mercy because I truly am already holy as I'm becoming holy. So should I sin that grace may abound? Should I just go ahead and do what my heart and my sinful passions want to do because I know I'll be forgiven? Scripture says, no, emphatically, you can't. If you have been changed, if you have faith in Christ and you have the spirit of God in you, you can no longer be that way. You must be different. You must be different. And how are you to be different on your own? Go, go off and do this thing on your own. No, you have the church. 
that is designed by God specifically to give you aid, to encourage you, to hold you accountable because you are to becoming like Christ. That's what you're to be becoming. You are to be like Christ. And so then you should be around people who want you to be like Christ. You should be around people who know Christ. You should be around people who speak the truth into your life. This is what you need because God wants you to be holy. But is it what your flesh wants? Our flesh wants people around us who say, don't worry, it's not a big deal to be a sinner. Don't worry, it's not a big deal to do those things. Don't worry, it's not a big deal. Nothing is a big deal except for people who make things a big deal. That's the only big deal I can find. People who make a big deal out of stuff are the problem. Everything is fine. Everything is good. But that's, it's just not true. Everything is not good. Everything's not okay. God wants us to be pushing forward in holiness. I hope that you've, uh, uh, that you've written down those passages because I'm not going to reference them right now. Okay? All right, we're going to move on from this and take this definition with us, and uh, we're going to work through this text very quickly because uh, it's very plain, okay? So here's how we're going to walk through it. Um, we saw the principle and the illustration last week, and this week we're simply looking at the application of these things, and it's pretty straightforward, okay? Verse 9, what Paul said. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with who? Sexually immoral people. And I, I really hope that you get what that means now. Um, I really hope that you see that the sexually immoral people are those who are committing these acts. They're actually following through with it. They're actually following through with all these cravings. Okay? All right, next. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So here's the next thing. We know what Paul said. They misunderstood it, obviously. Um, there is a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church previously. Okay? And we don't have that letter. But what he's saying is, I wrote to you before, and you guys obviously misunderstood, and we don't know exactly how they misunderstood, but he's writing to correct that. And he's saying, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. That's true. But I didn't mean the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy swindlers, idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Well, what does that mean? Well, what does it mean to associate with? Because that's a good question. This has a lot of application for us because what does it mean? If you, for example, work with someone who is a, who is a sexually immoral person, do the scriptures then call you to have no association with that person? Well, it kind of based, is based on how we understand what this text is saying. Right? Wouldn't you agree? Um, Paul is saying, I don't mean the sexually immoral of the world. And when you as an individual are out doing your thing and you're working, he said, if that were the case, you couldn't live in this world because there's so many of them. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying anyone who's a sinner, you just need to shelter yourself. Go find a cave to hide in and be away from all the sinners. That's not true. What he's saying is something different. But what does that word associate with? Um, what, what does that mean? Uh, just briefly, I want to tell you what that means. Uh, I, I'm going to tell you. So I didn't intend for this to be like, you know, Greek Sunday or anything. But this, this word is so much fun to say. I wanted to share it with you. Okay. 
It's sunananamigumi. Oh that, that's, that's good, isn't it? Um, it's very close to gungusmu. It's not quite there, but it's a good Greek word, sunanamigumi. Okay, so it, don't, it, it means to associate with, but what it really means is to, to mix together. It's to take two things and to put them together and mix them together. And really it's talking about mixing unholiness with holiness, mixing them together, associating them together as if they're one thing. Okay, he said don't do that. And I d- what, it, what, what that doesn't mean is that you remove yourself from the world. You still need to live in the world and associate with people of the world on an individual basis. So yes, still work with those people. It doesn't mean that if there's a company and the person who owns the company is not a believer and so they don't have Christian values that you just stop shopping at that company or something, okay? It's like, now, everyone has their own conscience, but you can't claim this passage to mean that, okay? Um, So it doesn't mean just stop dealing with the sinful world wrong. It's not what this is saying. This is saying something different. But don't take what's unholy and mix it together with what is holy. This is what he is saying. So it can't possibly be a reference to them. Those who are unbelievers are going to act like unbelievers. And you just need to acknowledge that wherever you are in life, right? You go to work tomorrow, go to school tomorrow, whatever it may be. Uh, you have, maybe you have a spouse, right? Or kids or whatever. There's going to be unbelievers in your life. And I mean, if you have an unbelieving spouse or something, scripture does not say have nothing more to do with them. Sorry, it's not what it says right? So obviously that's not what it means. So what does he mean? Look at uh, verse 11. What Paul did mean. What did he mean? He says, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality. He says, basically that's true because that's what we're talking about, sexual immorality. But he says, but these other things are also true. Greed, idolatry, if he's a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler, don't even eat with someone like that. Don't even eat with someone like that. So there's a couple of questions. What does it mean to bear the name brother? And what does it mean to be guilty? Do not associate with anyone who bears the name brother and who is guilty of these things. I would say to you that what is being said, and we must filter all this through all we've been talking about the past couple of weeks. What do we understand guilty to mean? that they have gone through the process of church discipline and been found and judged guilty, right? They have been found guilty by the church. Now he bears the name brother, and he is in their church. Now, we have a couple of issues because uh, what church are we talking about? Because all of you came from a different church, unless you're a new believer, and this is the first church you've ever gone to. You've gone to another church. And maybe the church that you went to before went through church discipline with you and said, guilty. Okay, a church did that with me too, basically. But they were wrong. So it wasn't correct. There were certain charges, but they were not accurate charges. Now, what if you go through that process and a church says, guilty, get him out of here. Well, I mean... I suppose I'd want to know a little bit more about that because I don't necessarily trust uh, what has happened there, right? Well, let's talk about it. Is that true? And so that leads us down the path of saying, well, was it a like-minded church with us? Do they believe the same things we believe? Is a biblical church that's governed by a body of elders, were you a member of that church? 
How did they go about that process with you? You get what I'm saying? But we have to go back to first century mentality. You didn't come from another church. If you were in Corinth or the area, you went to that church in Corinth. There was no other option for you. And so he's saying, if one of you who calls himself brother, that is one of you, is found guilty, that is you corporately got together, you went through this process and you said guilty, then this is the person that we're talking about. It's not, well, I think they're a sinner. They were found guilty by who? By me, right? They seem like a sexually immoral person. I have weighed them. I have judged them guilty. I'm having nothing more to do with you. Yo, you want to go get lunch? I think not. It says that I can't even eat with you. And, and that's how easily it is to misunderstand completely what's being said. This is not an individual judging a person. This is an entire church coming together going through this process with a person and then saying, we have found you guilty. You call yourself one of us, but we as a people affirmed that you had faith in Christ when we brought you into membership. But you are now living a different life and we can no longer affirm this about you, right? It only makes sense. So uh, let me just say this by way of summary right here. All those who had previously affirmed this person's genuineness of faith, that is when they became members, we now corporately and publicly, we can no longer affirm this, that the person who claims Christ, that you're refusing to act like someone who belongs to Christ. And so we're all getting together and saying, we once affirmed you positively and said, yes, a follower of Christ, and you're one of us, a brother, but we have tried to get you to see this, and you refuse repeatedly, and so we can no longer say and affirm publicly that you are one of us and someone in Christ. The text tells us to not associate with you. We can no longer mix you together with us. Does that make sense? We can't do it. So to overlook this, then, we have a problem because we're, we're, we're okay with mixing in things that are unholy with things that are holy. Does it mean you are perfectly holy in all your actions? No, it does not, even though you truly are holy, right? All of it is true. All of it is true, and it all works together. Okay, so this is what's being said. So do I think that this means that whenever there is food and this person who has been judged guilty are, are present, that you cannot be there with them, right? Let's say someone is charged with being a drunkard in our church and they are, we go through that whole process with them that we've uh, detailed, and at the end, they are still unrepentant, and they are still one of us, but we say, listen, we've gone through all of this with you. It is time that you need to be removed from among us. We have revoked your membership because you're not associating with us. We can't mix you in here with us. We cannot affirm publicly that you belong to us. We can't, and so we are revoking your membership benefits. We are no longer publicly associated with you corporately. So does this mean then that if they then call you and say, I've just really had a hard day today and it was so hard going through that process yesterday. I don't know. Can we get together and maybe over a cup of coffee and, and, and talk? You say, sorry, I can't even eat with someone like you. Just think about it. That's not what's being said. Because eating in the first century was more than eating. And that, I think, is actually a hard thing to process for us. Don't you remember that Jesus was criticized, what, for eating with? Sinners. 
Why couldn't he eat with them? Because eating meant more than eating, right? Or Peter, right? When he was eating with the Gentiles. And then some Jews came and he went, oh, I'm not going to eat with you anymore. Why? Because eating means more than eating to them. So we have to understand that here. Eating with them corporately meant all is okay. No problems between us. You're one of us. Come eat with us. Eating meant association publicly. It did not mean literally consuming food in the same geographical location. It's not what it meant. So this person then, there's no reason why this person can't attend services. They probably should be encouraged to attend services that they might hear the gospel, that they might see the gospel on display, but they no longer have formal, formal association with us. You see the big distinction? So there's a lot going on here. What might eat mean? Uh, it could be related to the Lord's Supper. I think only could be. I think definitely there are limitations, right? But eating meant more than eating. And so it meant formal association. So uh, anyway... You get the idea. Let's move on to the last point. Number four. So what does Paul then expect them to do? So we have what Paul said. They misunderstood it, right? And then, so Paul has to tell them what he did not mean, right? And then he has to tell them what he did mean. And now, what does he expect them to do? Look at verses 12 and 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. So in other words, that's, that's, not, that's not what we're talking about, right? And then what does he end with? A quotation. A quotation from the Old Testament. And it says, purge the evil person from among you. And I don't know how it could be any more plain what they are to do, right? Wouldn't you agree? That's pretty plain language. Get them out. Purge them from among you. That is used in the book of Deuteronomy six times kind of on repeat. And I'll just read for you Deuteronomy 22, 22, because it's this exact situation. Remember, if we can go way back to chapter 5, verse 1, right? It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So a man has someone who is other than his wife. Deuteronomy 22, 22 says, if a man is found laying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. And the man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from among Israel. Do you hear it? So how does Paul say to them, purge them? Well, get the guy, bring him up front, and kill him. And that way, the evil will be purged from among you. Now, that is what they did in national ethnic Israel at that time in history. That is what they were told to do. And that's pretty severe, isn't it? But that's not what we're told to do today. This guy has an opportunity for repentance and restoration. Thank God for his grace. Paul expects that the church will follow through, wouldn't you say? Paul expects that the church is going to follow through with corporate judgment on this person. This man clearly wants to retain membership and association with the church because he's still hanging around. The unfortunate reality that we have among us is that you approach a person and you bring them through this process and it's just like if you were at a job and this is your mentality and they say, listen, you got all these things against you and I'm so sorry to tell you that you are, and you say, whoa, 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 whoa. you can't fire me. I quit. 
And this is what people do in the church. You can't kick me out of here. I'm leaving. And you just go to one of the 10,000 churches on the road. And probably never bring this up. That's just something that we're going to have to cope with. And we just have to realize that this is a messy situation here. And it calls for wisdom, right? What do you do in that situation? I don't know. Please, Lord, be gracious to us and we never have to deal with that. Right? But we just have to be wise and walk through it graciously together, right? So what did happen after this? Um, well, Second Corinthians actually tells us what happened. Aren't you interested to know? Uh, we're just going to end uh, just by looking at a couple of verses that just tell us what, this, what, what all happened here. It's, it's very exciting to go back and look at it because we're, we're kind of zoomed in on that situation, but we're going to fast forward in time and we're going to be able to look back at what actually all transpired. And it's good. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. I think it's exciting. I get excited about the Bible. I like the Bible. It's very good. It's very good. Even when it's hard, right? Even when it's hard. Okay, you there? Second Corinthians three, or two verse uh, verse three. Excuse me. Second Corinthians two verse three. It says, "And I wrote as I did." That's First Corinthians. Okay, so that when I come, I might have to. I might not have to suffer pain from those who, who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of all of you. For I wrote to you out of much affliction. And in the anguish of my heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Okay, you hear Paul's heart when he had to write these words that we've been studying. Do you think that Paul was some calloused man who thought this was easy? Just get him out of there. Moving on. No, he, he was broken about this. Now, if anyone has caused you pain, he has caused it not to me, uh, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, but to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Do you hear that? This punishment by the majority, it's enough. So you should now turn and forgive him and comfort him. If not, he's going to be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Do you see what you need to do with this guy? Now, listen, you guys, you punished him corporately, and it's time. It's time to forgive him, and it's time to comfort him, and uh, if not, he's, this guy's going to be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. He loves you, and he wants to be back with you, and, and wouldn't you hope that if this happened, that that would be the heart of the person, is that I no longer am part of my church. It takes someone to love their church in order to be consumed with sorrow to no longer be part of their church. I hope that you love your church. So he says, so let's turn and forgive him, comfort him, uh, I beg you, reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I forgive. Indeed, I have forgiven. If I've forgiven anything, it's been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his designs. Okay, then we're going to jump ahead to chapter 7, because he talks about this one more time. Chapter 7, verse 8, 2 Corinthians. 
And he starts talking about 1 Corinthians again. And he says, if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Even though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, but only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. So the whole church repented. Do you see that? Why? Because the church was not doing what they should do. Corporately. The whole corporate church was wrong. Letting this guy just be here and be whoever he wanted to be. But they were grieved corporately into repenting. And Paul says, so I don't regret that I wrote it because now you are more holy than you were before. And I love that. Even though I did regret it, I hated having to write that letter. He says, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness what, uh, to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. What's he talking about? Their punishment of this guy. He's saying what is good about everything you did is that you now have eagerness to clear yourself of the issue of this guy. What you have now inside of you is a longing, a zeal, and punishment. Because punishment by the church to them is good. For a church to punish someone in this regard is good, not bad. He says, and at every point you have proved yourself innocent. So, although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed in the sight of God. That's good. That's so good. Paul said, I wrote this to you to see whether you collectively, as as the church of God, would be obedient. Because I know it's hard. But you did it. You did the right thing. And I'm proud of you. And I know it made you grieve. But look at who you are now. God used your grief. That's good. We are going to end there today. And... I know we talked a lot about corporate elements today, how this affects us corporately. There are individual aspects to, aspects to this as well. And uh, we'll cover those as time continues on together, okay? But let's pray this morning. Lord, thank you so much for your word. We love your word. Your word is beneficial to us. Your word cuts us deep. It is living and it is active among us. And I pray, like the church in Corinth, that should these circumstances arise, that we would be a people who are eager to be innocent of the matter and that we would have zeal and that we would have these things that push us forward that although things are hard, we can't imagine being a people who are not faithful to your word. So help us and by your grace, protect us. We ask for your will to be done among us, but we ask, if it's possible, that this would not be a situation that we have to go through together. But we ask for your will to be done and not our own. So God, I pray, help us with this. Give us strength. Give us courage to do what your word has told us to do. Why? Because you want us to be a holy people, not only as individuals, but as a corporate body. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.